Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here. It is good to see many people here in person, many visitors with us. We're very encouraged to be together. What a blessing God has given us opportunities such as this to come together as a spiritual family, to spend time in, in worship and in being nourished upon his word. If your Bibles aren't already open in not, uh, Luke chapter 9, if you'll turn there now. Luke chapter 9, the, the passage that Luke just read for us. Here we see Jesus conversing with three potential disciples who all express a desire to follow him. But his approach uh, to these three evangelism prospects is not exactly what we might expect it to be. In fact, according to the world's standards, Jesus demonstrates himself to be just about the worst evangelist possible here. You notice in verse 57, it says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. If we had somebody come in the doors today and make that statement, I, I want to follow Jesus, and I want to follow him wherever he leads to the day that I die. How would we respond to that? I think naturally, we'd be very excited about that, very eager to uh, see that person baptized, to place membership with us, to start serving. Uh, and that, that's right, and that's good, but I think it's helpful to see that Jesus expresses a concern here that maybe we need to take some time to stop and consider. Jesus wanted to make sure that these people understood the commitment they were making. You know, many times modern uh, evangelists today are, are trained in the art of salesmanship. That we, we try to find ways to attract people to the gospel that appeal to our maybe own selfish and fleshly desires. You might hear somebody say, well, if you commit your life to the Lord tonight, you will have health and wealth, and prosperity, God will come in, and he'll fix your marriage, and he'll fix your children, and he'll fix, you know, your relationships with people at work. That thing that you've been praying about, God will give it to you, and for a limited time only, if you're baptized tonight, we'll give you a fancy certificate to hang on your wall at home, and we will feature your name in next week's bulletin. What do you say? Well, that's not the way that Jesus evangelized, is it? Jesus' approach to people following him wasn't to attract them by, by selfish motivations here. Jesus didn't use promotional stunts and gimmicks to attract disciples. He didn't need to offer the gospel at clearance prices. Jesus had a gift to offer that could sell itself <laughs> at any price, whatever the cost. Eternal salvation, a home in the heavenly kingdom of God. And so Jesus was more concerned about the devotion of his followers than the number of his followers. Following Jesus is not a casual endeavor. It is an all or nothing affair. So before we commit our lives to be a disciple of Jesus, he wants us to take the time to count the cost, to know exactly what it is that we are committing to. So no, today we're going to look at Jesus's explanation here in Luke 9 of what it means to be a disciple, what it takes to follow him. We need to ask ourselves, are we ready to follow Jesus? Do we have the commitment to be his disciples? As we look here in Luke chapter 9, first of all, we might want to ask ourselves the question, are we ready to be persecuted? Read with me again in verse 
58 here. After this man comes and says, I will follow you wherever you go. It says, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Brethren, if we commit ourselves to following Jesus, we will no longer be able to call this world our home. In fact, in context here, Jesus in the previous section had just been rejected by the Samaritans. They would not give him a place to stay among them. And so, in the same way, we could expect to be rejected, to be persecuted, even to be ostracized by the world. We should not expect, as Christians, to live a life of comfort and convenience, but a life of sacrifice. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9 and verse 23 Luke chapter 9, verse 23, it says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus didn't say, Take up your comfy chair and your house slippers and your vanilla soy latte and come follow me. No, he said, Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. I'm afraid that our society today we bought into, in some cases, a convenience Christianity. Uh, I, I want to find a, a church that caters to my needs and preferences. I want to engage in acts of service that make me feel significant. I want to fit Jesus around my schedule, inside my comfort zone, and outside of my personal life. But brethren, Jesus doesn't fit there. Jesus calls us to conform our lives to him. If we want to be a disciple of Jesus, then my comfort and convenience needs to go out the window. Taking up a cross is not comfortable. Denying self, putting to death the old man is not convenient. Crucifixion hurts. And yet that's what Jesus has called us to do to put self to death, to take up our cross, put our old man of sin to death. But Christians are called to do hard things. You know, the Christians in the first century often assembled at threat to their lives, at threat to their families' lives. They continued to serve and to preach even when they were driven from their homes and their livelihood um, was at jeopardy. What do you think we would do today? What would you do today if serving Jesus meant that you weren't going to be able to go back home tonight, that your home was going to be taken from you, and that you were, at least for a time, going to have to, you and your family, uh, spend the night on the streets or, or find somebody's hospitality to take you in? Would you still decide to follow Jesus? What if you learned that your very life was in jeopardy and that you coming here today might mean that you and your family are dragged off and put in prison, even have to face death? Would you decide to follow Jesus? What if you knew that following Jesus meant that you would lose your job, that your 401k, that everything you have saved up, your life savings was going to be taken away from you? Would you still decide to follow Jesus? If not, 
then maybe we don't have the kind of commitment that Jesus is calling on these disciples to have. He's warning them, you may not have a place to lay your head. Even the the birds have nests and the foxes have holes. But the Son of Man, he just got rejected by the Samaritans and he spent last night sleeping outside. Is that our picture of what it means to follow Jesus? Well, that's what Jesus is telling these disciples. Look back in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20. This is, uh, we might be more commonly uh, familiar with the Sermon on the Mount's Beatitudes, but here on another occasion, Jesus gives some uh, Beatitudes here in Luke chapter 6. Starting in verse 20, it says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. What's Jesus' picture of discipleship here? Does it fit your picture of Christianity? If we're truly following Jesus, it may mean that we are excluded, that we are ostracized, that we are persecuted. It may mean that we have to be poor and hungry and needy that we have to go through times of suffering and hardship. But Jesus says that that is the blessed path. That's the path that follows in his footsteps that lead to the eternal throne above. Are we ready to follow Jesus? Have you ever been hated for Christ? Have you ever been ostracized for Christ? Insulted? Your name scorned as evil? for Christ? If not, maybe we're not doing this whole discipleship thing right. Now, that's not saying that just because we're hated must mean that we're following Jesus the right way. Uh, It may be that we're hated because we're bigoted and prideful and hypocritical and unnecessarily offensive. That doesn't mean we're following Jesus. But if we are truly following Jesus, we should expect at times that we are going to be persecuted, that that's going to be ridiculed. So many times we try to make Christianity something that the world looks up to, that the world likes. Certainly we have a hope and a peace and a joy that should attract the world around us, but not by worldly things, not by fleshly means, not by fitting into the mold of our culture. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 3, shortly after this, when Jesus is sending out disciples, the 72 to go preach, it says in verse 3, Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Does that sound like a very comfortable and convenient circumstance? <laughs> Does that sound like uh, a very easy call? 
If we are a lamb of God, every day spent in the world is a day spent in enemy territory. This world is not our home. We are pilgrims and sojourners, foreigners in this world. And the only place we can truly be at home is in the flock of God, in the arms and the bosom of our shepherd. Are you ready to be persecuted? Are you ready to sacrifice? Are you ready to take up your cross? To put your own personal desires and comfort and convenience on hold to make sure that you are rather pursuing the will of the Lord? If not, maybe you're not following Jesus. But as we go back to Luke chapter 9, we see in addition to this uh, that we need to be ready to proclaim the gospel. Look at verse 59 and 60. It says, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Let's first talk about this man's uh, objection or reservations in following Jesus. He says, let let me first go and bury my father. Now, is is he saying that his father is already dead and there's an impending burial and that's what he needs to do? I think on face value, that's probably what he's saying here. It's possible that he's saying, well, let me wait uh, for, for a time until my father has passed away and then I'll, I'll, I'll be here to help bury him. Um, I think maybe more naturally and fitting in more with the, the radical demands of Jesus throughout the Gospels as we get to Luke 14, he says, hate your father and mother. Um, I think perhaps this man wants to stay there so he can help bury his father who has just died. But Jesus tells him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I think it's helpful to see this maybe in some Old Testament context. Uh, Burial of parents was considered a sacred responsibility among the Jews, but there were two cases under the old law where somebody would be forbidden to make themselves unclean by participating in the burial of even a parent, even a family member. One is if they were under a Nazarite vow. We talked about this recently as we talked about Samson, who had a lifelong Nazarite vow that he broke. Uh, But in Numbers chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, we see that generally speaking, uh, people would make a, a commitment for a time to focus on holiness, on their relationship with the Lord. And during this time of the Nazarite vow, this time of commitment, They were not allowed to make themselves unclean even for burying a family member, even for burying a father or mother. The second case in the Old Testament was the high priest himself. In Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10 and 11, we read that the high priest had a sacred responsibility that was higher than the sacred responsibility of burying his parents. And so he was not allowed to make himself unclean by participating, even in the burial of, of, of a family member. In that context, what what is Jesus saying here? I think part of the point is you have a more sacred responsibility, a sacred responsibility that's on par with being the high priest, that's on par with a Nazarite vow. Uh, You know, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Burying of lifeless fleshly bodies is not a pressing concern of those who have hope beyond the grave. Let those who have no hope worry about that. I have more important work for you to do. But notice what he tells him that work is. 
He specifically says, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, means proclaiming the kingdom of God. Every disciple is to be somebody who is active in proclaiming and preaching and evangelizing and sharing the gospel. You remember earlier in the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, Jesus heals a man possessed with many demons. And in verse 38 of Luke chapter 8, it says, The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Here this man says, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to go with you. I want to be a follower of yours. And what does Jesus say? He says, following me in this case doesn't mean being with me in person. (laughs) Following me in this case means you go out, you go home, and you tell people what Jesus has done for you. That as well is our obligation. If we want to follow Jesus, we need to go and tell people what things the Lord has done for us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 9, uh, Peter talks about throughout his gospel how we are foreigners and sojourners here in this life. He says in chapter 2 and verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who is Peter talking about here? Is he just talking about, you know, full-time preachers, evangelists, the apostles? No, all of us. All of us have been called out of darkness that we might proclaim the excellencies of the one who changed us, who transformed us, who called us into his marvelous light. How do we proclaim? Well, certainly we shine that light in our deeds from day to day. Matthew 5 talks about that, that people may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. That's part of of shining our lights. But that that doesn't happen by deeds alone. If I just go out and do a bunch of good deeds, what's going to motivate people to glorify God for that? They're just going to say, well, Grady's a really good person. And we ultimately can't shine our lights if we do not also open our mouths and tell people about the light of the gospel. About the one who called us out of darkness. About what great things the Lord has done for us. And that's why this light is shining within us. That's why we're bearing the fruits of God's spirit that he has granted us. In Romans chapter 10, we studied this recently in our Tuesday night class. You remember here in Romans 10, starting in verse 14, he's talking about how we uh, call on the name of the Lord, uh, that it's in faith that we uh, receive his salvation. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How is the world going to hear 
the good news? How are they going to be motivated to, to then call upon Jesus to respond to his grace uh, and receive his salvation unless there are people going out and preaching? Notice the, the phrase here, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There's another passage within the scripture that talks about the feet of those who go out and proclaim the gospel. You may remember in Ephesians chapter 6, as we talk about the armor of God, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, you know, one of those pieces is having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. People whose, whose feet are prepared to go out and proclaim the gospel. How many Christians need to have that part of the armor? Just some of them? No, that's a part that each and every one of us needs. That all of us need to shod our feet with the preparation to go out and proclaim the gospel of peace. Yes, we do see in the scriptures that there are those entrusted with, with the full-time work and task of being evangelists. We see people like Timothy and Philip. But that's a work that each and every one of us needs to engage in. We are all called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. We are all called to, to shod our feeds with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We are all part of the body of Christ. And if we're part of his body, then we need to be doing his work. Um, there's a song we, we sometimes sing, uh, and it's, it's really not my favorite song. I'll explain why. Um, the World's Bible says, Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead men in his way. He has no tongue but our tongues to tell men how he died. He has no help but our help to bring them to his side. You know, there's a sense in which I don't really like singing that song because it makes it sound like it's, it's all about us. You know, it's all our strength and our ability and God really needs us, doesn't he? Obviously, I don't think that's the intent of the song. Uh, God is working. God is working providentially. God is working through the power of his word. He is the one who gives the increase. But I think there is some truth to that song. That God in his design did entrust his work to us. That we are his hands. That we are his feet. That we are the body of Christ. And he intends, fully intends, that we are his instruments in doing that work of taking the gospel to the lost. And in that sense, yes, it is our responsibility that he has entrusted to us. So are we ready to proclaim the gospel? Are you ready to sacrifice lesser endeavors and responsibilities to take up the sacred responsibility of sharing the gospel with a lost world? If not, maybe we aren't following Jesus. Because being a disciple of Jesus means proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. But as we go back to Luke chapter 9, we see a third potential disciple here in verse 61 and 62. It says in verse 61, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus didn't necessarily condemn this man saying bye to his family. In fact, in uh, the Old Testament, we, we see that this is precisely what Elisha did before he goes out and follows Elijah. But he does issue a warning. 
that we better make sure that if we're entering into this work, we are setting our hand to the plow and we are not looking back. Paul talks about the idea of not looking back in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. It says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Um, Paul had some very bad things in his past. He had some things that could have worked to his advantage in his past. But he says, all of that is rubbish. I'm focused now on the mission that God has given me. Um, to plow a straight line, we have to set our sights on some point in the distance and not take our eyes off it. If we find ourselves constantly looking back, uh, we're not going to plow a straight line. But I want us to notice in particular here the way in which this illustration describes what it means to be a disciple. He describes it as putting our hand to the plow. You know, being a disciple doesn't mean putting our bottom in a chair uh, on Sundays. It means putting our hand to a plow. And throughout Jesus' teaching, we see this type of language. In fact, even when he's describing the comfort of being his disciple in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Yes, because we're in the yoke with Jesus, we can learn from him. And that can be a great comforting thing, but it is a yoke. That's an instrument of work. We are, are putting our, our shoulders into the work. We're putting our hand to the plow. You see throughout the parables, we are described as disciples, as, as stewards, as laborers in his vineyard, as sowing the seed, laborers in his harvest. That's precisely how he describes uh, the, those he sends out here in Luke chapter 10 as going out into the harvest. As fishers of men, as uh, Carl pointed out earlier in Luke chapter 5. Look with me in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Reading from the New American Standard here, uh, Paul tells Timothy, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. As Paul is instructing Timothy here, how does he describe the Lord's work? As a soldier in active service, as an athlete, athlete competing as a farmer doing hard work. That's how we have discipleship described to us. Where, where's the passage in the scripture that describes uh, discipleship as some passive activity? That describes it as a spectator sport. Um, a relaxing vacation or an enjoyable pastime. There is no passage like that. Every passage that we have describing what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple, involves work. When we become a Christian, what that is, that's not just you know, putting a label on my religious preference. That, that, that's not just you know, putting, getting my membership card and you know, be, being part of a, a special club. Becoming a Christian is entering into a work. We're becoming employees of Christ. Full-time employees. Being a Christian is not a passive activity. It's a work we begin at baptism. And our hand cannot leave the plow 
until we follow the footsteps of Jesus into the gates of heaven. There's a preacher named Gary Sandusky, uh, and I have heard him say before, heaven is described as a place of rest, and I intend to be tired when I get there. That, that needs to be our perspective of what we're doing here in this life. God didn't put us here on earth so that we could just, you know, enjoy this nice vacation and, and see all the sights and, you know, get my cushy retirement and, and enjoy it and live it up. That, that sounds a whole lot like the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. Now, God put us here on, on earth for a reason for a purpose, to accomplish a work of reflecting his character, shining his light, and proclaiming the good news of salvation to the world around us. In Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, it talks about how Christ gave some as apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Later on in verse 16, it says, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The biblical picture of the body of Christ is not that a select few in positions of leadership do all the work. The biblical picture is that the leadership equips the saints to do the ministry, to do the work. That means everyone, every single part of the body, every joint, every ligament, every muscle, every tendon, down to the smallest member, is to be working. That's how the body is built up. That's how the body grows. And so God's picture of what this church should be, um, this church is not going to grow and thrive and be everything that God wants it to be, just when we appoint elders. Now, certainly, that's a valuable role. That's a valuable part of the body that God designed. And as we mature, that's something that we need. But it's not just, you know, well, once we get elders, then they can do it. And once we get deacons, then they can do it. Uh, and the evangelists, they can do it. Or whoever it might be. The picture of how the East Side Church of Christ, how this body that God has formed is going to grow is when every single part, every single member, is doing its work. Now, certainly different people are going to serve in different ways. We see that God made diversity within the body, diversity of abilities and talents and gifts and roles. You know, in my body, if I want to pick up my Bible and all four of my limbs go for it at once, you know, that's not going to work out very well, right? Um, and so certainly, we're not all going to serve in the same way. Um, and I, I don't think that's an ideal that we should strive for, that everybody is serving in the exact same way. But we all should be serving. And the abilities and the roles and the abilities that we have, the opportunities before us, we need to be seeking out how we can work actively, because that's what being a Christian is. That's what being a disciple is. It is a work. Jesus isn't interested in just getting people signed up on the member roster. Jesus isn't interested in just getting people to, to have the name Christian uh, under their religious preference. Jesus is interested in making full-time 
followers. Full-time workers in his harvest, fishers of men, laborers in his vineyard. And that's what he is calling you and I to be. This church should not have active and inactive members. We need to all be active in one way or another in doing the Lord's work. What are you doing in the Lord's work? What are you doing to build up his body? Who are you serving? Who are you reaching out to? What ministry are you actively engaging in? What need of the body are you seeking to meet? I'm encouraged with the group that we have here of all the good workers among us. And many times work being done that nobody knows about. People reaching out and encouraging each other, writing cards. But, but if, in, if when we ask that question, what work are you doing, you struggle to answer it, then maybe a change needs to take place. We need to each be actively working. We need to get off the bench, not just be a spectator, uh, but get in the game. Uh, Are you ready to put your hand to the plow? Are you ready to do the Lord's work from this day forward until the work is accomplished? If not, you're not ready to follow Jesus. There's nothing we would love more today than for someone to commit or recommit their lives to following Jesus. But we're not in the business of filling chairs. We aren't interested in just adding more names to the church roster or getting more people to contribute into the church treasury. We want to make true disciples because Jesus wants to make true disciples. We want to help people and we want to make sure we ourselves are following Jesus. Are you ready to follow Jesus today? Are you ready to be persecuted, to take up your cross, leave this world behind? Are you ready to proclaim the good news of salvation? Are you ready to plow, to get to work in building up the body of Christ, diligently pursuing the furtherance of his kingdom? If so, and there's any way that we can help you to follow Jesus today, won't you make it known? Won't you let us know how we can help you in your service to the Lord? If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, won't you please come forward and make that known as we stand and sing together.